interesting, occasionally interesting. They are occasionally interesting. I'm gonna not bother putting my headphones in today. Everybody, everybody, say words. Risky move. Whiskey mixer. Whiskey mixer. Whiskey mixer. Is that how you warm up for your podcast? It's a tongue twister. Unique New York. Unique New York. Whiskey mixer. How does everybody know about Unique New York? Unique New York. Probably a comedy thing. I feel like a Judd Apatow movie. Ah, but this has been a vocal warm up for centuries. Yeah, yeah, but. Black Bug's Blood. How now, Bronco? <laughs> Rubber baby buggy bunkers always bounce back. Do you know any tongue twisters? Um, No, just that one. Who slit the sheets? The sheets are slit. Whoever slit the sheets is a good sheet slitter. She sells seashells down by the seashore. One smart fella, he felt smart. Two smart fellas, they felt smart. Three smart fellas, they all felt smart. <laughs> Peter Piper picked a peck of pick a pepper. Ah! You failed. <laughs> 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 all right. <laughs> Today's, now we're all warmed up. Uh, yeah. Our voices are super warm and lubricated, and we're ready to bring you the sweet, dulcet sounds of Ruan. Hey. <laughs> Hello. All right. Uh, Ruan ha- is, is the host of the Rwando podcast. What's your subtitle? It was Perpetual Orgasm Infinite Play. But are you changing it? I mean, it is also, but it, I might change it. So. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, why is it, it, is, that? it was, and it will be. I, I didn't even remember that I had a subtitle until you just asked that question. Oh. Yeah. So, it, just by me asking this question, are you now thinking of changing it? Yeah, I think so, because I, I made that subtitle before I knew how I had any listeners, and I was like, ah, I'll just throw out these words that I like. Yeah. They were both titles of my book at one point. Nice. Yeah. What's the current working title of your book? Actually, it's Infinite Play. I was Perpetual Orgasm, but I kept getting rejected by publishers. I was like, this is probably not a good title. It's probably not sellable. Why? That seems like the opposite of truth. I mean, I don't know. Could you have Perpetual Orgasm on a book in Barnes & Noble? It seems like kind of heavy. The uh, Tim Ferriss's four-hour body, the subtitle is... The 15-minute orgasm, which is about my cult. What? No yeah, way. You didn't. Yeah, oh, yeah. Fantastic segue. Yeah, yeah. So, <laughs> uh, and I heard about the cults from a TED talk. They were very, very big and mainstream at one point, but they were in a TED talk. And then Tim Ferriss was trying to hack everything in that book. So he was trying to have a sex chapter and he got my cult one taste to teach him a 15 minute orgasm practice. And he actually coined that term and then they used it as marketing for many years afterwards. And did, did they say as made famous by Tim Ferriss or something? Like no, they just said the feature on the website, it said home of the 15 minute orgasm or something like that. Oh, I like that. Yeah. Home. Okay. Can you give us a brief uh, insight into the 15 minute orgasm? Yeah. So it's actually uh, uh, inaccurate the way Tim Ferriss pointed it because their definition of orgasm is different. It's a state of high sensation, not a climactic event. Mm-hmm. So the idea that you would have a 15-minute orgasm is kind of um, a poetic twist. It's just like you're in a state of high sensation for 15 minutes. You're feeling good for 15 minutes, but the whole practice is a man strokes a woman's clitoris for 15 minutes in a specific 10-step fashion. And the goal is not to have an orgasm. It's to feel the sensations in your body more acutely. And the man learns how to feel the woman's sensations. It's basically like practicing empathy on a physical level. That's so, cool. Yeah. Do you employ these practices uh, on on uh, unknowing ladies? Well, no, it's like it's not a technique in itself. It was like it's kind of like meditation. Do you practice meditation 
day to day. Like, no, you, you do meditation, you practice being present. So it's like that kind of thing. Like, yeah, I mean, at this point, I've done many, many orgasmic meditation sessions. And I think just unconsciously, I pay better attention to women when I'm in connection with a woman. I mean, but do the, do you like these specific uh, sequences of stroking? Are these things that you employ? In your no, life? no. It's like a practice. It's like you wouldn't like practice breathing meditation when you're talking to someone, but you just be like, you just you know, pay attention better. Yeah, but yeah, it has it has totally changed my way of relating to women and people and touching human bodies and stuff. Okay, sure. so let's start with uh, let's go chronologically through okay. your life. So the year was 2012. Yeah. <laughs> well, b- even before that, what the year was 1994. <laughs> you saw a movie called Catwoman, and uh, the rest is history. No. Yeah, yeah. I think no. It was uh, yeah. I think 1992. Uh, Batman Returns, the second Batman with Michael Keaton, the Timber. Uh, so I was thinking I was four, and Michelle Pfeiffer licks. Um, what was Batman? Oh, man, Michael Keaton's face, and I thought I, that was the first boner i remember getting i was this is the first time i connected like something about like sexual imagery and erections because like you know little kids get erections they don't know why it's like oh there's something to that and it feels fun so i would replay catwoman licking my face over and over again all the time as a small <laughs> child <laughs> i saw that was like, i didn't know what sex was that was just like the, the hottest thing i've ever seen in my life so uh, michelle pfeiffer <laughs> So, yeah, how would you describe your relationship to sex up until you saw the TED Talk that got you interested in one taste? Um, I didn't have much sex before then, but I... I, Intentionally or...? No, not intentionally. I was just very awkward around people, so it's kind of hard to get laid. Um, And so I had made sex mean a lot of things, like around self-esteem and my self-worth and like not being a loser and, you know, puberty is also driving you towards certain things, but... Um, I think maybe because I was having la- a lack of it, I was like trying to learn it really well so that when I did start having more sex, I could be good at it. So I was reading all these sex books and I felt like there was something around consciousness and like it, it meant a lot to me that to not only have sex but do it well whenever I did eventually. And the TED Talk was one thing that was like, oh, there's something around consciousness and sex that go together. Like enlightenment can somehow exist in this orgasm thing like that that was really like interesting to me because i had already tied my self-worth to connecting with women and that was around in your early 20s when you yeah i think i think i actually might have still been a virgin the first time i saw it when i was a freshman in college and then um yeah yeah and then i watched it like another 50 times over the next five years maybe maybe more i don't know which ted talk it was called um, Orgasm, the Cure to the Western, the Cure to the Hunger in the Western Woman. And it was by the cult leader, Nicole Daydon. And she quoted the Dalai Lama. And she, it was a really good TED Talk. I think it was great. I watched it on first dates with women that I was in, into. Like, it was what, like, was, what was the typical response? That was interesting. <laughs> like, they always say, like, that was interesting. Because <laughs> I was like, this is the type of sex I want to have. And they'd be like, that was interesting. And then nothing, you know. What type of sex would that be? Like real. So she coined the term slow sex, which was her best selling book. It was like off of the slow food movement where you like stop and really taste your food. Mm-hmm. Like it was the whole thing, like stop and really feel the micro sensations and every type of touch and every type of connection and stuff, as opposed to just like rushing to climax. So they really, they really like separated the idea of climax and like the state of orgasm that people want to live in, which I thought was really interesting too. And very in line with like some of the more ancient tantric ideas um 
so yeah, I wanted to like feel because I also right. So at the time that I actually got in contact with them, I was doing a lot of pickup artist stuff because I was trying to like get over my anxiety. So I was getting laid, but I was so emotionally disconnected that it eventually became erectile dysfunction. I was 23. So I was taking Viagra, I was doing drugs, I was doing all these things that were like further disconnecting me from my feelings and it was getting really bad. And um, so I kept going back to this TED talk, like I think there's something with like really feeling my feelings that is important, but I don't know what it was. And then I met them and then... How'd you meet them? Um, so I've been following them ever since I saw the TED talk as a freshman in college. Five years later, they happened to move into New York or set up shop in New York. Like Where had they been based previously? Uh, San Francisco. Like, I think in 2012, they really blew up and like they opened hubs in London, New York, Austin, Boulder, some other place, Los mm-hmm. Angeles. And I happened to live like four blocks from their first uh, center. It's like, ah, oh, serendipity. I have yeah. to go. I still think of serendipity. Totally. I had to go. And um, I expected to learn like some sex skills and stuff. But instead, they just talked about feelings and emotions. And Actually, the hot seats game we played yesterday was part of one of their intro games. I just think, I mean... That games like that really opened me up. It's like, wow, you could just talk about your feelings with strangers. Like I'd never done that before. Like I never had like a deep conversation with any of my friends emotionally. Wow. And um, so yeah, I just became hooked on it. I didn't even care about the sex stuff by the time I took their first OM class, orgasm meditation class. I just was like, I just want to talk about my feelings with these crazy people. <laughs> yeah. Um, why do you think it is in our typical society that there is such a, a rush to get to climax and not feel our feelings or Um, sensations well i really think it goes back to the military industrial complex of like production being so we've talked about this before like like production being like such this uh champion thing over the artistic side of life or the feeling based side of life we're trying to produce money especially in a place like new york where you're trying to make rent and get ahead in your career and uh you know get the right relationship asset like people are trying to get the best partner they can get and they're constantly switching around and I think um, they forget that life isn't all on paper, which I think. I mean, I think it comes back to consumerism and stuff we've spoken about before. Um, it's like it's more focused on getting the notch on your old belt than it is to be in a moment and experience somebody. Yeah, the notch being getting laid or even having like a trophy partner. I mean, you see that a lot everywhere, but like I think in New York, because it's expensive and there's so much. Um, but it doesn't always seem yeah. like it's like. A totally external validation i mean maybe even external validation just between the two of you where you're just trying to get your partner there as quickly as possible in order yeah. to prove that you can yeah yeah you know um yeah i think yeah exactly <laughs> <laughs> um something yesterday and something you just said made me think about the i believe it was um one of the cartoons that we were talking about when we first were hanging out that was dealing with different like relationship types cartoons oh oh, this is what we were just talking about this was the myers-briggs test yeah was that was that part of that yeah um he, this is an online test. I think it's called 16personalities.com. Um, I can double check that. I'll put it in the notes if I'm wrong or if I'm right. <laughs> um, but yeah, I sent Trevor a personality test pretty early on in our relationship. This was something I was interested in because we had also just listened to uh, the Invisibilia episode on the personality myth. And mm. we were talking a lot about the concept of personality. And then I, I was like, well, you know, I think just 
ego wise or just I, in the pursuit of like knowing about myself and being a better version of myself i've always been really interested in personality tests like it's very interesting i think that they are a little bit horoscopy and especially after listening to this invisibilia episode i'm not sure how much i believe in personality as like a thing that exists rather than just a situational response to mm-hmm. stimuli but um yeah, I sent Trevor this personality test and he was going through it. And I think he was INTP. Um, the, the, dis- the, the searcher or the something discoverer, like that. Discoverer. The discoverer. Yeah, is that the right letters? I don't know. Letters? I, uh, <laughs> That's Trevor said, said that earlier. earlier. I just remember. Okay, yeah. So, and then he was reading through this and was like so freaked out. He had never taken a personality test before and was like, what? I mean, freaked out in in, in, a, in a in a gleeful way of be. I, I, you said the words like, "Are they are they watching me right now?" And then he was like, "What the fuck? They said that in the next paragraph. They said you think are we watching you right now? <laughs> oh my god, they really like know me. What's going on?" And uh, yeah, where I don't know where you go ahead. Where were you going? I don't. This? I think that was. I think this was in the same like week that we were talking about it. But I remember referencing Brad and his relationship because we had just hung out with him, and he was. You know, there's there's different types of relationships, typical relationships that we enter into. One of them's like the one the one that looks good on paper, where you know you check all these boxes. Good job, nice car. You know, will look good to the parents, and and that's. And that gives your relationship value, so it lasts way longer than it should because mm. you think that that's what society says your partner should be like. And then there was like a set of at least four that were different versions of. Do you go into the specifics of what was going on with our friend? Uh, he was in a relationship with a woman that he was not very emotionally connected to, from what he was saying, but had the possibility of advancing his career. Uh, they worked mm. together. I think she was in a position higher than he was. Um, and, you know, it made a lot of sense intellectually to continue this relationship. They were about to move in together. And he was like, I just really don't fucking like her. <laughs> I'm like, well, that's not a great reason. <laughs> like, I don't know what to tell you. It's going to end poorly, but hey, your dharma. <laughs> I mean, you know, there's tons of these relationships based on these things that, that, do last a really long time and don't necessarily end end poorly but it doesn't mean that they go well like on the day-to-day there might not be any type of enjoyment but that doesn't mean that there's a catastrophic ending that's true i think there's also to be something said that you know like arranged marriages are more successful statistically yeah i was just thinking that meaning that they don't end because they have a different definition of marriage i sort of look at it as like kind of settling for mediocrity like Okay, I can have something that's stable, but you know, not necessarily based off of passion and fire. But because of that, it's more stable. Yeah, there's also a. T- I don't know if I, I subscribe to this, but it's like a tantric idea that with arranged marriages, it's like it's decided by fate, so you have to make it work. It's like they actually learn to love each other because like they don't have a choice, so they like, really need to learn how to love. And that was kind of like the idea behind some tantric practices. Like, can you learn to love the person who happens to be in front of you? Because that's who you got. And I don't, I don't know. I've never. I mean, I suck at relationship longevity, but I like the idea. <laughs> Why do you think you suck at relationship longevity? Uh, I'm super avoidant on the attachment theory, and and I am afraid of. This is something I've been discussing a lot while at this retreat that we're on. Yeah. If you um, want, here, wait. Say a quick sentence about where we are, what we're doing right now. Oh uh, yeah. So I uh, created this little retreat with. Uh, per, uh, 
<laughs> a woman that I'm connecting with deeply. Um, and uh, yeah, we wanted to do, we were on another vacation last weekend and we're like, oh, we want to do something really cool. We're supporting cool people that we know that are helping other people in the world. I have this like little charity that I'm a part of where we like allocate money to little things. We're like, what would even be better than just giving money to a needy person, spending a little bit of cash on people in a way that they can help other people better and that would actually make a bigger impact so we got you guys together with some other cool people we know to spend some time together it's kind of a test run to see if we, we definitely want to do it again after yesterday and today but that's that's what we're on right now we're in the mountains in thailand and really quickly if somebody wanted to donate to that charity how would they do so the neighborfund.com uh, minimum ten dollars a month and with that you get to vote on how the money is used every month and what are your three categories um every well we're switching to quarterly starting now but um people which is a person in need it could be an artist an entrepreneur a person you know um, causes which are traditional charities and then magic which is finding a way to spread enchantment through the world which is what this retreat was meant to be and i can say from experience that it was indeed enchanting awesome (laughs) (laughs) yeah Oh, Wait, attachment. Were, yeah, yeah. Going so so attachment. yeah. So anyway, um, <laughs> I have a history of not sticking. I've never even finished a year lease on an apartment, and I've never made it to an anniversary in a relationship. Um, ironic that I coach people on relationships and how to get close, but I don't stay in them myself. I mean, don't you feel like that is so often the case? Like some of the very best teachers are ones that can't employ their own practices, but that doesn't negate how much insight they have and how clearly yeah. they're able to see others. Because I've thought about it because like I've helped a lot of marriages not end in divorce because i know what to tell the guy to do how to you know get his wife to connect with him more but like i myself don't want to stay in the relationships for whatever reason do you have but, any insight into what those reasons may be um well we've been breaking it down uh this this retreat um i was hurt like in high school it's like embarrassing to think about like that far as half a lifetime ago and I don't ever want to be the one that's left and I always leave first. Or I choose people that I know I'm not going to stay with for whatever reason. That's what I did for a very long time. Yeah, yeah. I pick people that I knew that there was some sort of fundamental flaw with that inevitably this was going to not, this was going to end. And or at least in my head, I think a lot of times it was even a really pretty weak, shabby excuse for it to, like, to not, they were great people, you know? It was just like, oh, they're too young or, you know, a variety of reasons that, that I would definitely select people that i knew weren't going to go past a certain point yeah definitely my last relationship uh, she had a kid and i remember telling my best friend like i really like her but there's no way i i don't want to be a stepfather and i still went into i moved in with her i was like like <laughs> looking back i mean she was great and i was like why did i why did i set myself up for that i just wanted to have this experience i guess unconsciously semi-consciously i don't know well also i mean i feel the if you heard the saying like it sucks until it doesn't, you know, mm-hmm. like it doesn't work until it does. Like all of our relationships prior to now had to be kind of shitty in order for us to learn all the lessons we needed to get to each other and for it to now work out. You know, if all the if the relationships we'd been in had been worth staying in, then we wouldn't be here getting married. Yeah. Well, I think also the flip side of me choosing people that I knew weren't in the long run probably going to work out was that i would not choose people that i could see myself truly connecting with and it took a long time to get past that to the point where i would then you know go and purposely choose people that 
I could see a lasting future with and risk getting. Hmm. I'm also thinking if we zoom out on a meta level, if you're saying, like, because what you said makes, Jen just said, makes so much sense. Like, you kind of need a bunch of practice relationships to be good. Like, who's to say that that was wrong of you? Like, maybe you made the right decision choosing the wrong people so you could have a bunch of practice relationships before Jen. Totally. That's absolutely what I believe. I agree. And they weren't like, you know, they weren't toxic or bad relationships. I mean, you know, certain elements of them became that over time, but, you know, it's. It happens in some relationships, and like they weren't bad choices. It was just I was definitely subconsciously selecting ones. what wouldn't be, yeah, yeah, that I at least would have a reasonable out in my mind. Be like, well, you know, there was this problem, so peace. But I think that they were good choices to learn the lessons we needed to learn in order to be like. I mean, yeah, I feel like we're more or less an arranged marriage by the gods. Like it seems <laughs> absolutely faded. Like everything about it, everything about the timing and the where we were in our lives and that we both had. It's crazy that you met, what, in kindergarten? or Fifth grade. Fifth grade, okay. Yeah, because I remember be, when I was that young, kindergarten through fifth grade, I'd be like, whenever I had a crush, I was like, I'm going to marry her. I'm going to marry Kelly McCormick. And I don't know what she's doing. Like, it would be crazy <laughs> if I got with her. <laughs> yeah. But what, <laughs> maybe you were supposed to marry Kelly McCormick. I mean, yeah, I don't know. Shouts out to Kelly McCormick. Kelly, know we know you're a big fan of the podcast. <laughs> Please reach out. What yeah. do you think it is about age that changes that perception of a relationship? Of like, your young love feels so all-encompassing. Yeah, I think it's just you don't have a lot of experiences. So the first time you feel something, and maybe the second and the third and the fourth time seem like such a big deal. And you're like, well, I kind of know how this goes. I did exactly this set of feelings last time, and then I felt like this later, and eventually you learn, hopefully. When Jen and I were in our, the infancy of our relationship, I, I made a, a comment that she took to heart more than I meant her to. It was more just so, me sort of... A long argument where I pulled lots of people. Yes, and I, I was just sort of saying it at, offhanded as a potential theory rather than something that I believed that, that she definitely ingested way more than I intended. Um, and it was. And then he learned that I will always do that. Yes, so. <laughs> quickly learned that <laughs> she cater my. Uh, I guess I haven't quite learned that yet. But uh, do you remember what exactly I said? The essentially the first love is the only one that could like ever really be pure because you don't. Like, if you stay with the first person you love, then you never learn that heartbreak and love never gets tarnished. So Mm. first love is if you stay with your first love, like that's the one that has the most potential for like being the best. And I was I was in extreme opposition to this. And yeah, thought that was absolutely fucking crazy. If I got with Kelly McCormick, I wouldn't be avoidant attached right now. Wait, what? Oh, like if I stayed with my first. Yeah. First crush. Yeah, that makes sense. But you know, I think that's part of being human is learning heartbreak and getting fucked up. Yeah, don't you feel like you're a way better, deeper, layered person that you've experienced that you've gotten fucked up? <laughs> I think I'm very fortunate that I was able to eventually. And it took a long time to to recover from the pain of you know young love and the heartbreak that follows that uh so yes i do but i think it's risky i think a lot of people hold on to that for a very long time and it's a difficult their first love yeah and the pain that that came from that ending um so i feel fortunate that i had that experience and then i was able to grow from it i mean that's any sort of tragedy that happens in anybody's life is 
How do you deal with it afterwards? Post-traumatic growth. I don't, I don't think that we often give give that enough space in society to be like, wow, that you know, that's that's really gonna hurt. <laughs> you know, like we all kind of understand it, but it's all like, ah, yeah, buck up, son. And that's not always easy. Yeah, definitely. People do not give like 16 through 19 year olds enough credit when they're experiencing their first heartbreak of how that's probably. Mm-hmm. I mean, that just for everybody ever, that's one of the most devastating things that they'll ever go through. Yeah. And it's just kind of like, oh, young love dismissed. Yeah. yeah. Even feelings like Mr. Rogers has a quote, like people don't uh, take seriously children's feelings because they don't know the world. But like their feelings are just as real as a grown up feelings. Absolutely. Uh, and statistically speaking, we have less sympathy for people going through hardships that we ourselves have gone through, which I think is a very fascinating statistic. Because mm. oh, we know that we made it through. Yeah, 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 yeah. Which seems like it should be the opposite to me, at least. Like intuitively, I would say, you know, oh, I've been through, I've been in your shoes. I feel for you. Like that seems like the natural, but it's it's more often the opposite. Buck up, son. You can get through it. Just true. You know, sometimes that is the best advice. Mm. I mean, really, there's not much else you can say. I wonder if that's because, like, for someone who's gone through it, like, you don't have to go back to the place where you feel that despair. So, just like, ah, we're fine. Just, like, don't worry about it. Like, you don't want to have to feel it yourself. So, you tell them not to feel it, basically. It's terrible. Yeah. 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 Stop it, humans. (laughs) (laughs) All right. let's, uh, Let's keep going through your chronology all right so you just or one taste moved in four blocks away and Mm -hmm. you immediately said excuse me sign me up i enjoy speaking about my feelings and where did it go from so i signed up for their like how to ohm class the like clitoris stroking thing didn't really get the point of it i felt like what tim ferris had in his book was very different than what the class was like the, the class was also about like is kind of like intuitive coaching. Like the guru was spent the first half of the day just talking to each person for five minutes each. It was like, what the hell is this? Like, when are they ta- going to talk about sex? It was crazy. <laughs> but then she said something to me. She she gave me probably the best cold read anyone has ever done. Like she was able to identify clearly that I had a lot of repressed anger, which no one ever said to me. I didn't wasn't re- I didn't recognize it myself. And something about that, just like just being seen in that way, opened up something and like validated my feelings and like. The next few weeks, I felt like I was a different person. I was actually expressing myself for the first time maybe ever as an adult. And um, a few weeks later, they invited me to take a $15,000 coaching program, which is way more money than I had. I was already like, I was already out of a job for a year, so I was already in a bit of debt. So it was a very irresponsible thing for me to do. But I felt so good for the first time in a long time that I did it. And then I moved into their penthouse, which was kind of set, set up like an ashram for clitoris stroking it was like it was a spiritualized intentional community but where we got up every day to stroke genitals as a consciousness practice and um yeah the next two years i was deep in that world um doing that stuff (laughs) that was my transition you all in the same room together stroking genitals oh yeah that was the thing so like even even if you weren't in the coaching program or in the community house every monday and wednesday you met up Kind of like a yoga class, you pair it up and you stroke the clitoris. What was the general uh, pubic hair situation of women? So um, they really, it was really female. It was a matriarchy. It was very female focused, female empowerment. So women were encouraged to not do whatever whatever they wanted. So I I saw the most bushes I've ever seen in my life because like every young woman I'd been with had been shaved up until that point. Shaved or trimmed or something like that. 
So yeah, I I got okay with pubic hair. I got okay with vaginal odors. I just saw enough of it that I was just like, okay. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. So yeah, what, what's your what's your overall relationship to the vagina as a whole before and after your time in Montes? Uh, I've seen so many that everything is like whatever. Like um, <laughs> as far as pubic hair, I only care if it's like a few days past shaving is prickly. Other than that, I don't care what you do. Um, oh, this is like a theme in my book. Like nipples still fascinate me because women keep their tops on during that stuff. So I've seen way more vaginas than nipples. So like when a woman gets naked, I'm like, oh, that's what your nipples look like. But with vaginas, I'm like, I've seen something that looks like that before. probably. So I don't know. I, I think that's a strange thing. Strange thing with my perception of female bodies. Did Was it only stroking of female genitals or did male genitals ever get played uh, with? Male ohm was an advanced practice. Uh-huh. Um, so they did that, but only when you're pretty deep in. And there's a few reasons for that. Like one legitimate reason was that um, I think women need physical touch more and like to have the attention sent to women's bodies is something that's lacking in general in our culture. But also... But not to men's bodies? Yeah, well, like, so the way it was posed is like men jerk off to porn typically because they want to experience a woman. They want to experience sympathetic arousal, like seeing a woman coming. Whereas women tend to masturbate with vibrators conventionally because they need direct stimulation. So a man stroking a woman's clitoris kind of fulfills the need for most for both people. And um, a lot of sex is conventionally male orgasm hyper focused. So like this is kind of like a balancing thing. And um, as a man, like you actually learn to like pay attention to both bodies together, which I think is a skill men lack. And it's good for you too to like learn how to empathize. Um, but then also, I think they also, it's like marketing tool to get men to stay in longer when they can get stroked eventually. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So it was all, everything was both. Like there was like a light side and a dark side to everything they did pretty much. I mean, yeah. it seems like that for everything in life basically. Yeah. <laughs> Just because, yeah. Yeah. Every benevolent thing is also a marketing tool. Yeah. No. <laughs> Look deep in thought. You're cocking a question. Well, let's go back to the timeline. So $15,000, how did you finance that? Um, zero APR credit cards, which, you know, I mean, there's another thing with the credit card consumer system. A, a guy who is unemployed for a year was able to keep increasing his credit limit. I just kept switching cards. And it pretty much lasted until the month i left the cult when my apr kicked in so it's kind of like an odd synchronicity as well but yeah i just kept getting a new credit card on zero apr until my credit was so shot that i couldn't so that's basically what i lived on and so i left two years later i left with like 35k in debt and i couldn't qualify for any apartment and like life sucked but for two years it was great i had like unlimited funds i mean enough to live and how how many years was it from the time you left until the time you moved to thailand um like a year and a half oh no two years no one year exactly one year exactly oh no two years exactly sorry yeah two mm-hmm. years and <clears throat> now you run a podcast mm-hmm. uh a website where both of these you write on or you s- educate on topics of sex male empowerment connection whatever yeah a lot of the stuff i learned i mean one taste was my education mm-hmm. in in a very deep way and um yeah personal development for men most guys are looking for help with dating but it really is an emotional thing or they have a sexual question but it's really like a self-esteem thing i mean all of it ends up being emotional and yeah so you're you're a 
how what exactly what words would you use to describe your coaching i don't know personality technique are you a life coach are you a sex coach are you a personal um, development coach what are you i i try i mean i think the light term life coach is corny but it's probably the most all-encompassing yeah. so that's the probably the best thing i try to stick with the verbs i'm like i coach people i don't say i am a thing yeah yeah i like that distinguish yeah. too much identity and i just want to say what i do so you started learning coaching techniques in one taste. Yeah. So I took the coaching program thinking life coaching was a ridiculous idea, but I wanted to learn more of what they did. Like I just felt like they had the solution to all of my life angst. So I went in learning that and like halfway through, I was like, oh, this life coaching thing is actually kind of fun and I think I could actually help people. And I was also broke and unemployable. So it's like, well, I have to do something for money and this seems to be a thing I can do. And then I just like fell in love with the idea of helping people this way. And within One Taste, were you mostly coaching men or only coaching men? Yeah. So eventually I was on the coaching staff and I was like, there were few, there were way less men than women in the organization. And I was probably the youngest guy. So anytime they had a young guy come through the door, they would stick me on him. That was also a marketing thing too. Like they would always match up the salesperson to the person they were like down to like if there was an overweight woman with body image issues, they put an overweight woman to sell her stuff or like a young guy who's in his head. They put me to talk to him or, you know, every there's a a different person for every type of demographic they would try to sell to, which is part of the dark side. I don't think. Why is this inherently dark? Well, like, you know, we'd, we'd have a class and then at lunchtime we'd break down who we thought could buy stuff and how to talk to them and like who should talk to them and what insecurities to hit on to talk to them. Like, But just because you're selling a product, I mean, if your product is to overall enhance the quality of that person's life, do we need to say that that is malicious just because yeah, you're putting well, a monetary is, value on it? This is where it's like kind of tricky because this is that's how I see it. But I mean, like at what point is sales underhanded? Like, I don't I mean, because like the products weren't bullshit, but they were definitely overhyped. And like, I think the dark part was that they would help you with what they promised, but it would also become, make you dependent and probably cause you to lose more money and maybe lose your job and do things that would you would later regret morally. And it was, it was all a slippery slope. Like I ended up doing, I, I had a good experience. I think I got my $15,000 worth, but I also left with way more debt than that. And I was kind of confused for a few years after that. I don't know. I, I had an overall positive experience, but some people I know are still fucked up. Like they're still in debt. They're still had the PTSD or sexual trauma or stuff like that. So I don't know. It's it's an ethical gray. Do you have a life uh, mission statement or a purpose or anything like that? Um, Not in words, but I really want to help people. And I think what's developed for me since leaving the cult is that there's a whole in men's development that I think I can fit really well. And I really want to fit that whole that gap what do you think that hole is it's like around consciousness I, I just think a lot of the men's coaches are either too soft or too hard like the pickup guys are too in their head the conscious tantra vegan guys are too like too soft i think yeah. i think they're a bunch of wimps a lot of them and i think and like you know my coaching philosophy with men is don't be a dick don't be a pussy like they're both important like you can't be a dick in the world but you also can't be a wimp so like and i think having that balance is a beautiful hit on. motto yeah it's my it's my it's my most engaged instagram post <laughs> don't be a dick don't be a pussy don't be genitals and you're, you're nailing it and i think you know it's a simple idea but i don't think a lot of people embody it the way i want to like i've been to a bunch of men's groups and i think that a lot of them are way too soft like there is something about male vulnerability that requires challenges and confrontation and like being tough with each other too like that's part like my favorite videos you may have seen this is like 
little kid trying to uh, break the karate board and he's crying and like the coach is like you can cry but like also do it and then he does it and he feels so good like i think that embodies like male growth like it's not about hugs and pats on the back sometimes it's about like you can cry and do the shit you're supposed to do like yeah that's um that's beautiful yeah i love watching those videos they always make me cry <laughs> what are uh is there any like free coaching tips you can give to our listener list male listeners of, i mean of- i think a lot of stuff is so personal unless it's general like don't be a dick don't be a pussy uh-huh. but like hey i think there's something about some some of the traditional values i think are really important in being grounded which doesn't mean not feeling but it means like you don't flip out over every little emotional thing you feel your emotions but like like john wayne felt a lot of emotions marlon brando in the movies felt a lot of emotions but they were so grounded they didn't flip out or cry or get watery just because something stressful is happening which is what i think a lot of men are being encouraged to do nowadays like feel your feelings and like you can be a little bitch if you want and like, it's not actually what being a man is it's not even healthy or being a good partner like you kind of have to handle your shit too anyway sorry i get i get i get riled up about no, this stuff because i get annoyed, i want you but... riled <laughs> all right <laughs> yeah yeah and I, and I learned a lot of stuff at one taste like they really championed the dark side of the psyche like they really so one thing is interesting uh is a lot of personal development in america comes from the church of satan like if you follow the ideologies down i don't know if i spoke to you about this before but like if you follow the ideologies from like even corporate training scientology landmark education like a lot of it is like feel your dark impulses or like be true to your emotions which might be anger might be lust and um, i think that's important too um, you've recently developed an interest in Carl Jung and uh, yeah. all of his archetypes, and you've brought this into your coaching and writing and whatnot. Can you talk more about that? Yeah, so like similar is um, like these repressed uh, elements of our psyche we can personify as archetypes. Like there's a hero in all of us, which is why we all like Marvel movies, and like there's a lover in all of us, which is why rom coms appeal to us. And you know, there's a dirty I'm seeing a dog right now. Like it's a dirty dog scoundrel <laughs> in us, and like which is why we were drawn to villainous characters like Tony Soprano. And um, we can when we have something repressed about ourselves because our parents or our society said like you can't do this, you can't be too sexual, or you can't be too loving, or you can't cry. It's like a character in our psyche got like locked up, and these cause us to have um, unconscious detrimental behaviors like. Maybe we end up being violent when we don't mean to, or we end up being sneaky or manipulative, or we end up not going for what we want or speaking up for ourselves. And I think it is an effective tool to personify these as a character that you, you know, it's like a shadow, like Peter Pan's shadow got detached from you. And like integrating them allows your real personality to come out in a constructive and benevolent way. Because if you repress them, weird stuff will happen. Some like a rape fantasy, which is not weird by itself, but maybe you actually want to become a rapist because you've dissociated from your lust for so long that it has to come out in this like aggressive way for you to feel normal again. Mm. For example. Yeah, I think this essentially uh, distills down into uh, authenticity of like the this when meeting people and all of the unconscious ways in which we're judging if we want to want them in our lives. I think I say stuff like, you know, I don't, I don't trust people who aren't like a little bit of an asshole Yeah, because they're, you know, it's not saying like, I want someone who's 
who's mean and flying off the handle or like can't control themselves. I'm saying people who who don't bring their shadow into the light terrify me. They must be hiding something. Yeah. Yeah. No it's one's like, perfect. No one's perfect. And if you're the more comfortable and upfront you are with your darkness, the less it has control over you. Like you you have more control over it if yeah. you're not hiding from it or hiding it from you. And yeah, I think that's ultimately. How about you? Do you do you feel like this when you when you're like meeting people and judging if you want them to be your friends or not? Yeah, yeah. I mean, with the, I mean, I, I probably judge them too much, but like the hyper spiritual vegan namaste group, I think a lot of times they get so turned off because I think they're hiding something. It's like you, you're not this loving all that. There's like, especially <laughs> we were talked about this before. Like when a guy is like, "Oh, my brother," and they give you the thirty second hug, and you, they just met you. It's like, come on, you don't really love me like this. Like you're faking. There's something else. Yeah. And like if if I can't trust you on this, maybe I can't trust you on everything else nice you say or do. Um, yeah. Yeah, I'm gonna out you. Last night, Trevor was like, "I just gotta say, like, the more time we spend away from the hippies, the better I feel." <laughs> and but I was like, "No, no, no!" Like, there's. I mean, I th- I think probably everyone at this retreat would identify at least a little bit as a hippie. Yeah, I'm wearing hippie like, pants right now. Yeah, but like as a as, with uh, the core hippie values of community, connection to yourself, to each other, to the planet, etc., and not just about namaste vegan look at how woke i am 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 (laughs) which is kind of the the hippies that we see in pie a bit and it does get overwhelming and they're definitely the type of people who are not bringing the darkness into the light yeah i don't know if we want to speak about her but uh when i hung out with you guys in pie there's another guest there. Let's speak about her. Okay, because like, so she, I think she just comes to mind because she would preach all these things about being conscious and all this stuff, and then she would do these weird things that if she just admitted to the fact that she had anger, she wouldn't be such a a bitch. Yeah, <laughs> like, like she was so unpleasant to be around because she wouldn't admit to these judgments that she had. Where it'd just be nicer if she just was real. Like she wasn't real. That was the thing that was so uncomfortable about being around her. I. I think. I agree. <laughs> no, I agree. I agree. Um, our neighbor, we were talking with him. Thank you. <laughs> I was well, I was trying to get your brain to say this. I was sending you messages. Um, <clears throat> and, 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 and this resonates with me because of a, an intense mushroom trip where I had this whole like uh, pagan versus more of like a Catholic Catholic view of religion, the the, the the war going on between them and the way it's depicted. And you know, I was raised Episcopalian. It's like you know, there's there's evil out there, and that's the devil, and it's 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 this ongoing struggle between us and and it to not succumb to the the temptations that arise, mm-hmm. and, and and when you do succumb to them, that's evil, and that's something that should be 100% avoided. And, and I agree with you. I think there's this whole new school of thought emerging that's you know you need to connect with those more animalistic more more innate oftentimes what society would deem as more darker shadowy shadowy you know taboo kind of desires and he was referencing this struggle and that the pagan rituals that have been indoctrinated into christianity and how that there's this war going on and and really mimicking this this crazy sort of like intense really terrible trip that i had like (laughs) like in real time and i was like yeah like yeah i I, 
I inevitably came to different conclusions than he, but I think there's definitely a valid question there of, of especially when you look at current events of, is there a downside to sort of acknowledging and accepting these darker urges? Yeah. Well, I would say, I mean, like all the demonic imagery are, are again, archetypes. Like we all have anger. We all have violent impulses from time to time. We all want to, you know, get, we get pissed off in traffic and stuff. And like, as Jen was saying, if, if you're, if you're hiding them from yourself, I think that's when it comes out. Like if you look at, uh, all the serial killers that are in TV, everyone says they were such a nice person. Like they were yeah. like clearly repressing something and it comes out in this weird way as opposed to like actually feeling your piss off and like talking about it and expressing it in a way that doesn't kill people. I mean, maybe that's a like a hyperbolic view, but I, I do think like, you know, the the really bad stuff happens when we repress it. Like if, if that murderer got to express his anger when he was four, maybe he wouldn't want to kill animals and people, for example. I Maybe there's obviously there's probably exceptions to that, but you know I think and I, I mean Christianity's big uh, addition to the collective consciousness was dissociating and like making a clear line between good and evil. Like if you look at some of the older religions, like Zoroastrianism or something that led to Christianity and ideology, they didn't they didn't consider um, the demon side of us like as evil. It's just like another part that happens, and you know embrace it and learn how to express it in a way that doesn't destroy people's lives because oh yeah good i think you'll really enjoy jitterbug perfume yeah it's next on my reading list (laughs) (laughs) it it it, it definitely explores this conversation in an interesting way yeah i can't wait plus you learn how to become immortal oh sweet yeah if you want to hang out with us forever (laughs) we'll be around i'm down i'm super down for that podcast in year 3000 yeah yeah. (laughs) in the year 3000 it's beautiful. Nobody watches yeah. Conan. <laughs> no. Oh, fine. Yeah. Um, also, one more addition about our neighbor is that he's kind of like the a very extreme version of this Namaste hippie who's saying, but like with a bit of a religious turn of that he's accepted God into his heart and God is everywhere. But he's saying all this shit, and he's never said anything remotely positive or nice. It's all unbelievably negative and judgmental and fear-mongering and it took us a little bit to come to this conclusion where i was like what is it like i feel so terrible being around him and conversing with him and like for most intents and purposes he seems he seems somewhat nice but he's never said anything positive uh, but it took us a while to figure this out to kind of distill this of like holy shit that he's just, he's an incredibly negative person but he's he's hiding or disguising that as yeah it's like what else is being hidden like yeah what other weird shit you know or dark stuff you know if you can't trust his demeanor yeah oh because one thing and i think this is why it was explored so much in one taste is that um, sex is a place where you kind of have to be real like if like people who are really fake and put up these facades um, often have problems in the bedroom because you kind of have to explore your real emotions, which is why a lot of darker things show up in bed. Like there's a lot of fetishes and taboos and things. We were talking about this yesterday. Um, like, it, cause like it, something either turns you on or it doesn't. And like, you have to be real in bed. And, and yeah, there's, I think there's a few other areas in life where that's true. Um, but is, how does role playing factor into this? 
I think you're you're getting to experience emotions you want to experience in a way that's not real, whether it's a rape fantasy or an age thing or an incest play. You don't actually want to do it. But there's a part of you that like it's thinks scary. it's interesting. Yeah. So you do it in a kind of a fake way where everyone is safe. But so that, you get doesn't, to satisfy. Like, that doesn't count as fake. Like role playing is an extension of reality. Well, I think it's it's uh, the real emotions you're curious about on, in, in your deep brain, but you don't actually want to do something that would harm someone. And I think if, if you really play with that, I mean, I, I've coached guys who have like pedophilic OCD fantasies. It's like they definitely are not pedophiles, but yeah. they get hung up on this idea and they're ashamed of it. So right. like it's like, like don't think about the go. pink elephant. Like they right. can't stop thinking yeah. about it. And like they're, they're, they're genuinely good people. They just got this thing stuck in their head. Yeah, you should yeah. definitely. Uh, we really recommend Invisibilia, the secret history of thoughts. It's their, it's their pilot episode of Invisibilia and mm. it goes into... A somewhat similar thing of this guy who gets obsessed with these violent urges and is like convinced that he's a murderer and it's just a type of OCD. Yeah. And he goes to all these different therapists who have these different um, styles of therapy until and like keeps on progressively getting more and more freaked out about what an evil murderer he is until he finds one therapist. And we learned from this episode that the actually right now, at least in American psychology, the majority of psychologists believe that your thoughts don't really matter all that much and that your thoughts are not a reflection of who you are. But it took him a couple tries to find a psychologist who was of this belief and uh, made him, you know, do a couple different therapies before the the big one where he made him his patient hold a, a knife to his wife's throat because he was so worried that he was going to kill his wife. And then he was able to see clearly that, he was never going to kill his wife once he had the ability to kill his wife. He had no actual desire to follow through on this. It was just a type of OCD where he had a bad thought and then would get so obsessed with this bad thought that he couldn't stop playing it over and over again. And yeah, don't think about a pink elephant. And yeah. Yeah. I'm into, I mean, I think that stuff is so interesting, but man, if that, if that therapy didn't work out right. right. Yeah. <laughs> I, again, I, they built up to it. Like there was many uh, tests before, before the big one of, of making sure that this was real, but yeah. yeah. So they were really, they didn't, they didn't do anything that extreme, but in one taste, like anytime someone had an aversion or a fear, they tried to act it out or do something extreme. I did some stupid stuff when I was coaching for them. Like I had this one girl who was afraid of, afraid of men so I took her to the top of this roof in in Manhattan, and I told her to push me off. And like we did that for like thirty minutes. Like I was waiting for. I was like, now I'm like, why the fuck did I do that? That could have been so bad. Yeah. <laughs> but I'm not, I was in a different reality where I was like, yeah, this is this is what everyone needs. Wow. But anyway, yeah, I did some stupid stuff. That's amazing. In that world. <laughs> Are you all interested to get into with him our conversation from the other night about men being terrifying? No. <laughs> okay. Not really, but if you would like to. That was just curious. I feel like we played that one out the other night. Between you and I? Yeah. Played it out? How? I don't know. You sure? You would like to? No. <laughs> um, back to One Taste. What was, was there a turning point where you decided that this wasn't something you wanted to continue to pursue? Um, there was a couple, or it was two, like, so nine months in, I started work, or six months in, I started working for them. So I got to see a little more behind the scenes. And then I saw how money focused they were. Like, one reason why I was so drawn to the community is that 
it really hit on a lot of my egalitarian ideals. I was like, oh, wait, what if there was a world where everyone knew each other and like the community was completely vetted and it was more tribal and we shared resources? And when I got the invitation to live with them, it was kind of that. Like we had a pretty low rent because we shared beds with random people that we're paired with and um, we, we shared our food budget and like everything was communal. And it was like really kind of the dream that I had envisioned. And then when I started working for them, I was like, oh, like this is a really profit-driven company and they do some underhanded things to get people to buy things and part with money that they don't have. And um, and I was sick of it. And I and also they didn't play their employees. Like we were, we were volunteers slash part-time we employees. Paying. We were paid... Um, I mean, you paid $15,000. Yeah, and I was hired by them to sell other people on buying $15,000 courses or $10,000 courses and stuff. hired without being paid. Yeah, because like our commission plan was never written down. So like it would change. Every time we asked about money, it was like, oh, you get 10% of whatever you sell. Or like, oh, you get a salary of this much. And like we didn't get paid for two months. So like I was very hyper. I was very worried about money the whole time. So I, I made a big stink about it. I got publicly shamed within the company for like being a oh, Ruan is money focused. Like he doesn't do this for the, from the goodness of his heart. And I was like, wait, but I need to pay the rent that you were charging me and pay the course fees that you were charging me. Yeah. <laughs> like anyway, it was like a bit of a mind fuck. Cause like no one else, no one else spoke up anyway. So I got fired and I was happy to be fired, but I still love the community. So that was a turning point. I was like, I'm never going to work for them again, but I love their ideals. I was very, and what, how, how long into it was that? It was maybe nine months in or 10 months in. So I got together people, a bunch of people in the community and I had developed some influence. Like I ran their men, I started their men's group in New York and like I was kind of like a high, they didn't have rankings because it was a matriarchy, but I was like kind of high up there in mm-hmm. the approval rating, I guess. So I got together some people to start our own community house where we wouldn't be attached to the business, but we'd still be in the community. And I did that for a while and um, my little house developed some influence. So like the One Taste staff, all of this is in retrospect, I could see now, like, but they kind of did like a coup to like influence the people in our house. And um, the second turning point was I wanted to work with the guru directly to write a book with her because they're all about, they wanted to keep make me come back because I was influential, but I didn't want to. So we went back and forth, back and forth. And I got access to the guru that you're not supposed to get, basically. Like most people pay like 40 grand to spend a week with her. And I was trying to get her in for free. And Basically, she gave me an, a public ultimatum. Either you commit your life to us or you're out. Um, and then it was really hard, but I eventually chose out because I didn't, you know, that wasn't part of the plan. <laughs> what would that commitment look like? It wasn't like a, a contractual thing, but it'd be basically like I would just devote my life to them and not try to have worldly possessions. Like they really mix a lot of religious ideas in. Like a monk doesn't have any possessions. They like, you know, they live off of the community. And like that's what a lot of people did. Was the guru doing this? No, she was pocketing all the money. And, you know, I think for a while uh, she didn't have a salary, but the company paid for her penthouses in different cities and paid for her everything. And she sold the company recently for $13 million and uh, is now living living large. <laughs> if, the, if the organization was not so money-focused, how do you think that would have changed its behavior and... Like, do you think it could have been successful or more successful in terms of the humanitarian impact? If it seems like it was pretty fucking successful. It's yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, not successful in the conventional terms, but like, do you think that some of the the negatives could have been negated if 
it wasn't charging as much and wasn't yeah um the thing is like they were able so like they come from a family tree of i I, even the the clitoris stroking thing came from a different cult in the 70s which came from a different cult in the 60s and one taste was the first one to bring it to the mainstream and really make some big money like the where the place to start is called morehouse they teach sexuality classes but they never grew past like a commune there's a commune in i think northern california and they never got big one taste was able to reach way more people because they learned how to do the business thing and and take a lot of money from rich people. Um, so I don't know. It's kind of hard to tell because they they made a big impact on people because they had money to spread their message more. So uh, same thing with anything like imperialism spread certain things by taking over other countries. Yeah, I don't know. I'm glad the world speaks English, but it sucks for all the countries and cultures that were dominated by England. <laughs> yeah, it is really convenient for us traveling the world. Yeah. yeah. Love having an American passport, but yeah, what's she going to do? Unless you're going to Vietnam. Ah. Please <laughs> <laughs> get that visa before you go. Um, I keep thinking about what Nathan said that day of... You know, he, he we've talked about cults and the nature of cults and and what makes a cult a cult and not just a group of people with similar ideologies and 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 he likes to play on the whole paganist versus christianity versus control versus freedom and you know like i uh, i forget exactly the way he worded it but he was like you know you can you can normally tell whether somebody's trying to make you more free or less free. And, you know, when you take that critical look at an organization and such as, say, religion, are they trying to control your behavior or are they trying to have you reach your full potential? And like, where does those differences lie? Is, are they, can they, do they lie in congruence? Are they always in opposition? Is it, um, I think it's a very interesting debate to have of, you know, Christianity would say, well, you know, we have these, these, these rules that will lead you to being a better person, but in those rules is a restriction of freedom and, and, and blocking away certain parts of yourself for the greater good or for your own personal growth. And I'm sort of summarizing what I would say is a version of it. I don't, I don't want to speak for him, but, um, and then there's the flip side of that, which would be acknowledging your, your, inner desires and and integrating them and that's that's a more free version of and a less restrictive version of how you can live and the debate the struggle between those two ideologies uh, there's sort of a merit to both of them in a way depending on how corrupt on either side you can go is it becomes more polluted as an original ideology that kind of makes sense but i don't know kind of integrating those two together is an interesting struggle yeah, I don't think there's an easy answer to it because, like, even Christianity, assuming that all the history or like you know everything that we know about it is is accurate, it probably started as like a really great self help movement. It's like here are some ways to live really happily, and like some people got together, the apostles, like this is awesome, let's spread it. Mm-hmm. But then they had an organization, and they kind of needed money, and they kind of needed to spread their message and not be persecuted, so they had to find ways for the organization to become stronger, militarily, monetarily, and like that forced. Pe- I mean. When it gets to the point where someone you're helping, the best thing for them is to do something that doesn't help the organization. I think every person is going to be in a dilemma like, well, 
we could encourage them to go travel the world, but maybe we should encourage them to also stay here and spend more time and money with us. And I think that's the ultimate thing that happens every time. I mean, like even, yeah, I mean, the organization takes a mind of its own because no organization wants to die. It's like a light. It's, it's like an organism. It yeah. wants to keep growing. I think my, my favorite chapter written by Richard Bach in one is, uh, it's a story about this couple that, goes to different dimensions and sees different realities and one Meets of the different versions of themselves yeah and in themselves they one. are also everyone so you yeah. know it's all you know they are for an instant you know till of the hunt and they mm. see that anger within themselves and um the one that i'm referencing right now is they go back and they see a prophet who has written a book that is religious text of of well we give it the label religious text it's just a book of fundamental truths yeah and answers to the big questions and and these these answers are correct and you know you, you know for a fact they are the way and then what do you do after that how do you preserve that how do you guard that in its truth and have it not be and share it and share it and 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 without it being tainted by you know religious organizations that are have their own agenda or, and then do you do you do you safeguard it do you do you create an institution around it to protect it to make sure it's not manipulated do you defend it with your life or other people's lives do you kill in order to preserve it and the conclusion that it comes to is that these truths are self-evident and that only people who have already come to them can truly get it so going forward and trying to like sort of spread it is sort of unnecessary because the only people who are going to be receptive to it are people who already understand it on a fundamental level even if it's not as eloquently worded in their own heads but already have a basic understanding of of what it means and therefore trying to create an organization and 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 do all these things to to spread the word is is counterproductive for the ideology. For the ideology. For but you, what if that prophet needs to make a living and wants some worldly things? Like, hey, I could, I could pimp this book out, get a Rolls Royce. What if somebody tries to, if doesn't like the idea of these truths being spread and tries to destroy the book? What do you do? Yeah, what, you got to kill him. <laughs> got to send a crusade to <sighs> end them. Yeah, yeah, that's an interesting dilemma. I think you know, once you once you stumble on something that you know is right, you. you it feels like you should, you know, share it, share it and protect it. But yeah, they go through all of these scenarios and ultimately realize that they can't, they can't protect it. They can't turn this into a religious ideology. And anybody who, uh, holds these truths inside their core, like they exist there and it will only ever resonate with the people who already have it inside of them. Hmm. Yeah, because that's making me think of like the the spiritual vegan people were talking about. Like they have stumbled on something that someone probably spread to them, but they don't really get it yet because they're they're dressing up in a way as opposed to actually accepting everything or whatever the truth is, right? <laughs> whatever the right way to live is. Yeah, I think that often you know there's definitely some people that get it more than others, and you know. They're- they're all on their paths and coming to similar conclusions in their own times. But it, I think it's it's similar to any sort of like uh, subculture of you know, like in high school with the goths. It's like I don't fit in anywhere, but all of a sudden here I 
feel more seen than anywhere else. So I'm going to adopt this this way of speaking, this way of dressing, this way of because it 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 feels better than other things that I've tried, and that's not really understanding the ideology behind it. It's just sort of liking the idea of being accepted into this very open group that's not all that open, but as long as you conform to exactly how they think. (laughs) Yeah, well, that's a great way to distill it. Like, I love being a part of this open accepting group as long as you're exactly what they're open to and accept. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Yeah, because you you were saying something earlier about... um, the group serving the individual, which is kind of a new, have you read Sapiens? I don't know if you're talking about that. But like in the book, he was talking about how the idea that the individual desire is the most important thing is a pretty new idea in human history. Like for a long time, it was like, you must serve the group. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of our early rites of passage for that. And I, you know, that's made me think a lot. It's like, because I've always assumed growing up in American culture, like Western culture, like, oh yeah, the individual, your desires are what are important. But that, that, that wasn't the case for a long time, which is why unconsciously we're drawn to like, if we don't know what the truth is, let's do what all those people are doing because they must know if that means dressing up with black nails and Slayer t-shirts, that's what you do. <laughs> <laughs> well, just like the difference between, one of the fundamental differences between the right and the left is an idea of, you know, is what's best for the group ultimately best for the individual or what's best for the individual ultimately best for the group and the different modes of thought that come from those two different perspectives. And, they're both right is the thing. There's just a balance to be had. Politics is all about finding that balance that works well within the current technologies and mode of productions of the society that you live in. Because <clears throat> they're both fundamentally, you know, what is best for me, if it's accurate in a, in a more worldly view of what's best for me is ultimately going to be best for society and vice versa. Yeah, it's tough having both uh, ideologies in the same country or groups we weren't meant to be that big i've thought about this like what if like america can just like split into two countries take up the same land but like you know if you're blue you follow these laws and if you're ready follow these laws and we'll just try to make these two nations fit together and like take up the same space like they do that in high schools in new york like there's like the math focused kids and english focused kids in the same building but they are in different schools basically yeah. Which I would say, you know, I think I would say that's like a more right wing ideology of like less federal government, you know, as as restricted as possible. And then you have states which can have different politics, different needs, different desires. And then that those can be played out in local laws and then even down to more you know, municipalities can be more one way or the other. And then, you know, assuming that people have the freedom to move, you can you can say, OK, well, you know this town doesn't allow abortions and I don't like that. So I'm going to go over to the next one. That's an argument for say pro life on a federal level, but then we're allowing States to choose. Well, you know, Alabama can be pro life, but I'm not going to live in fucking Alabama then. Like I see that they've had a terrible, you know, high school graduation rates and higher crimes. And maybe that's not what I want. And, I think that's a that's the best argument that I've ever heard for maybe the federal government not having a pro-life stance is leave it up to the states and then allow people to sort it out. Because I think naturally people would be like, yeah, we're not really pro-choice. Uh, all the pro-choice states are doing a lot better than me. Uh, perhaps, perhaps I should uh, look at that. I'm sort of end the debate once and for all. <laughs> yeah, right. I think it would. I think, I think people... I don't yeah. think it would. Well, like, for instance, Roe v. Wade was passed 
three years after New York State had legalized abortions. It was one of the states. There was like three or four states to legalize abortions mm-hmm. prior to it being coming federally legalized. And one of the reasons why Rudy Giuliani is so held in such high regard is because he was the mayor 18 years after New York had legalized abortion. So in his tenure, you had high school graduation rates skyrocket. You had crime rates plummet. You had all these benchmarkers of a very productive Mm. society. And coincidentally, that happened 18 years after all these... Not so coincidentally. Yeah. Uh, all these un- these children who would have been born into really terrible circumstances <clears throat> didn't didn't weren't and all like so so he's accredited with all these advancements and when in reality when you look at three years later the whole country experienced this yeah after it was federally legalized I always thought it was very interesting but so I do think that you'd be surprised how much of an impact that thing could have and how much that would influence the way that people and and quite frankly if you it should be your kind. It, 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 there's, I think, there's an argument to be had that it could be your choice. That if you still want to live in that society, where it's that restrictive, who who am I to say that that yeah. shouldn't be your choice? The record, as I'm long, pro-choice. As long as we yeah. give mobilization <laughs> options. To well, that, yeah, that's the other problem. Is yeah, that people it, can't move as yeah, easily in an ideal yeah. world? You can move wherever you want to, and then you can vote with your feet. But that's not a reality, and it's even less of a reality when you have. A restricted society. Yeah, destructive practices that then further restrict your mobility. And yeah, so. That was a little tangent. <laughs> that was great. Yeah. What's the most unrealistic thing you believe in? Um, wait, what did I say last time? No, not allowed to think about that. Oh, you're a new, um, you're a new I'm person. I'm a new person two weeks later. Um... Well, yes, yeah, we're talking about this retreat. I, I think there's something with uh, connecting with the universe. And I, I, there's also, like, I think the solution to, like, if you have the answers to something, how do you choose to really benefit the person as opposed to, like, well, I need them to pay me, you know, like, really trusting that if you do the right thing, the stuff you need will come back to you. It's not realistic. But, I, I mean, I like it. I, I'm follow, I'm trying to live that way. <laughs> Kill you, bro. Yeah. Uh, what's the most annoying thing about people? Um, uh, uh, ironically, I will say judgment as I judge such people <laughs> as I judge. I've said a few judgmental things this podcast, but I think it's annoying. <laughs> <laughs> it's only annoying when they're wrong. Yeah. Right. <laughs> <laughs> or when they're not judging the same way as you. <laughs> That's what it comes down to. What's your favorite thing about yourself? Um, courage to do the stuff that is scary. Well, that's what courage is, but yeah. <laughs> <laughs> can a man be brave when he's afraid? A man can only be brave when he's afraid. That's the only time a man can be brave. Uh, that's the only time a man can be brave. <laughs> the movie's that from? Game of Thrones. Right. right. Oh. I feel like it's also probably from somewhere else. But yeah. What's your most embarrassing story from childhood? Um, well, I remember what I said last time. So let me think of a different one. Um, this one's definitely going to come out before the other one. Oh. So, the she, well, time. She's the same one. I no. said in the future. Uh, <laughs> in the future, I'm talking about peeing on someone by accident during a game of Twister. But <laughs> but when I actually think about it, I wasn't that embarrassed. In fact, I was kind of proud of myself. <laughs> <laughs> um, yes. 
Uh, shit. Like when I, I this, it doesn't. The thing, I remember the most embarrassment when I was in a toy store in the Philippines with my Filipino family, and I just went behind the cash register to like play with a toy I wanted to, not realizing that you can't do that. I felt a lot of shame, but it wasn't you know, because your joy. family shamed you. No, because I was like, why did I think that was okay to just walk? I was like, I was like, maybe I was seven years old, so I was like walking under skirts of like yeah. the, the workers and stuff. I don't know. I remember feeling a lot of embarrassment. Uh, I remember in third grade, I brought in an electric pencil sharpener. I thought this was the coolest thing in the world. I was like, yeah, I like, love, love fresh, fresh pencil, and, and I put it on the desk. I'm very proud of this thing. And then my teacher was like, you can't have that. Like, what are you doing? Like, nobody else has that. Why would you think you could have that on your desk? And I'm, I'm, st- I'm still, I'm so mortified about this really stupid well, thing. Why couldn't you have it? I don't know. She had to conform. Yeah. Yeah, yeah everyone yeah. had to conform. Yeah. The ironic thing is that the teacher, um, that, same teacher that my teacher brother that had, who really helped love, my brother. Right? Yeah, it was a teacher that I absolutely loved. Uh, um, a, lot, a lot for what he did with my brother. He really would take some of the more. Is it Tommy? Yeah. Yeah, he's um, a musician. He's pretty famous in our town. Oh, yeah. sweet. Yeah, yeah. He had a, Tommy uh, Conwell and the, the top. He had a hit hit it? hit single in the eighties. Uh, What's his band's name? Uh, it was Tommy Conwell and the Little Kings. And the Little Kings. And I think he's now the the Young Rumblers or something like that. Um, or maybe I have those reversed. Maybe he was the Young Rumblers now. Now he's the, I don't know. <laughs> Check uh, him out. <laughs> yeah, he's great. He's a great guy. I, don't hold that against him, but it definitely is. It, it, it. Yeah. No, I, it's remembering of a, a better embarrassing story. Remember when uh, Disney princess dolls had like a stand that would play their theme song? Yeah, I mean, I'm looking at you, Jen, because no, I assume <laughs> that you played with dolls as a little nope, girl. Nope, I had a, my brother was five and a half years older than me. I was not like permitted to play with dolls. I was, uh, you know, they would, they would be terrorized. I did, I think I started playing with dolls around age eight when American Girl dolls came popular but prior to that like all of my childhood it was like only stuffed animals because if I ever showed that I was interested in girly stuff I would get beat up oh man that's rough <laughs> well, anyway all the girls in my kindergarten class had like these dolls and I remember playing with them during playtime like making the music sound and then we had we were taking a test or like doing something quiet and I was like I want to do that now and i didn't realize that you can hear stuff more when it's quiet so i played this like in like a whole new world played really loudly and then i was like so embarrassed so i tried i i didn't know where to put it to make the sound go away so i i sat on it i was like trying to squeeze my butt cheeks over it hard enough that the sound would leak then the teacher found out and the girl got in trouble for it because it was her toy and i was like i could just play this off like i didn't do anything but like that was like i don't know what happened i don't remember what happened but i was very ashamed did you come clean um I don't honestly. I don't think I did, but I think the teacher didn't really care. I just uh-huh. had an overactive guilt mechanism. Do you know anybody who doesn't have an overactive guilt mechanism? Well, now I think I repress guilt because every time I do psychedelics, I feel a lot of guilt that's not even my guilt. I think I just mm-hmm. don't feel that emotion enough. Right? I find ways to not feel guilt when I did something I should feel guilty over. Interesting. Yeah, maybe as a reaction to my overactive guilt as a child. What book has most influenced your life? Finite Infinite Games, which Aaron left at your place for a few weeks. Didn't take ownership <laughs> over. About. Yeah, son of a bitch. Yeah, no, it's uh, it's my favorite philosophy book. I read it while I was in the cult, actually, and it made 
it put a lot of things in perspective for me, especially like being super heady and like on paper focused about things. Like I could get the practical value out of situations to developing faith. And my arm tattoos come from the title. But that sounds like a great book. Let's read this book. It's a great book. Is it about game theory? What is it? No, it's well, game theory was kind of my obsession beforehand. I think that left me kind of cold in the way I looked at reality. And Finding Infinite Games is about like, I guess, infinite game theory of like how all of life is a never ending game that doesn't end. You're not supposed to win it, you're supposed to keep playing it. That's a very simple way to put it, but it's a good book. I recommend it. That's interesting. Why did game theory make. Like, to me, I sort of felt the opposite of, like, okay, here's how people act given a certain set of circumstances, and that just provided me with insight into to how people make choices. I was also learning it in the context of behavioral economics, so it was yeah. more of a, you know, a practical application of, okay, well, if, you know, people are going to cheat, you know, how is we, as a society, should we handle that? Well, it is the material. I mean, I have prisoner's dilemma on my left arm uh, because I, I mean, it's like, oh, well, people aren't evil. It's like the circumstances set you up to make choices that we see as evil. And I was like, well, that's really sad that all of society is set up for us to screw each other. Like we're incentivized to be bad. Like that that sucks. I was like, and it kind of made me like overly calculating like in dating or in work. I was like, well, what do I need to do to incentivize the other person to do the thing that would be best for me or best for both of us? And it just made me very uh, like it was like, economics is the dismal science like it's just like oh life sucks this is these are how the numbers work out to show you that life sucks like which i which made me sad so i Trevor got this, was an economics major uh, okay yeah see it's very I, dismal <laughs> i sort of it, 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 i mean it, it, it definitely can be i think that the fundamental flaw of that is it is economics in general assumes that we have we are all knowing we are omnipotent in the choices that we make like but i think that if if let's hold that as a truth for instance and then you know take a look at that idea of well you know if i know what's best for me on a, on a truly worldly like ultimate knowledge of this is what's going to be best for me then that i believe would be in line with it doesn't matter if you're manipulating or or, or doing anything to, to to bring people into that line because that truth is going to be what's best for everybody sort of what we were kind of just talking about of what's best for the individuals best for society and vice versa is is if you're able to know what's truly best for you then Mm -hmm. it doesn't matter if you need to employ you know even cheat necessarily in terms of game theory to get people on board now i mean in reality that's never possible to be all-knowing and to know 100 percent for a fact that your choices are right so Economics is fundamentally flawed, um, which is why game theory is so interesting. Is because mm-hmm. okay, you know, we're not we, we're not all knowing, we're not rational, we're not completely self interested beings. And how does this play out in reality? Well, let's do a couple of games to figure it out. Um, but I think that you know, the ideas are. Yeah, and I think it's super important. I still love game theory, but like what finite infinite games suggested was like beyond like game theory, like finite game theory, like what happens when the game is over? Like every economic game is like played single shot or played a certain number of reps or something. And like, what if, like what, what is life beyond a single game? Like, can you lose a game and still live in harmony with other games? Um, and ultimately, I mean, it's like a practice of faith. Like the purpose of the game is not, the purpose of the infinite game is not to win a bunch of little games, but it's to play with other people in reality. At least that's what I took from it. Changed my life. Abundance. Yeah. <laughs> no, that sounds good.
What is the most environmentally friendly thing you do? Um, I tried being zero paper. I think I told you guys this before, but I couldn't get my bum gun slash butt wiping towels to feel okay. So I went back to toilet paper. But I did that for a while. I also tried being plastic bag free, but then washing out my garbage can every time was annoying. So these are things I failed at. Was the thing I do now still? I don't know. I don't use straws when I can help it. It's not nothing that crazy. <laughs> no, I think I think just the being present, looking for the things that you can do as yourself, like that in itself, as an environmental practice. Just keeping your awareness open to things that you are doing and things that you can change in your practices. Even just the the intention of wanting to reduce paper by keeping that in your mind. You're absolutely going to make different choices, even if you can't get to 100% paper free. So, good work. Thanks. I'm proud of you. Thank you. <laughs> and why? No, wait. What think light light practices do you do to keep yourself sane and balanced? Um, well, as of a retreat day yesterday, I renewed my old practices of writing first thing in the morning and doing a little tai chi, and I feel great. I felt accomplished by 9:30. Nice. Uh, and now anything could happen today and I'd feel okay about it. Oh, that's yeah. great. Morning, Eugene. Yeah. Why do people do small talk? Because uh, they don't want to be challenged by big talk. And it's easier to fill the space rather than feel the discomfort of silence. What is your definition of small talk? Uh, talking about stuff that no one really cares about. Hmm. Why is silence uncomfortable? Because... Perhaps we feel like we must be making sounds in order to experience connection, even when the connection is not real. I just made that up now. It sounded very good. (laughs) All right. Where is everywhere that people can find you and how can people support you? Um, Best thing would be to go to rwando.com. That has everything, links to my podcast, courses, how to get in touch with me, my medium stuff. If you want to see my writing. Um, if you want to participate in the neighbor fund, you can go to the neighborfund.com as mentioned, a $10 donation gives you vo- the same voting rights as everyone else to vote on how we allocate funds to people, causes and magic. And then the idea was to, um, reverse the tragedy of the commons. If we can h- hit a high enough scale, where like, we all willingly invest in something that helps the greater good as opposed to hoarding our wealth as incentivized by the prisoner dilemma of society. That's the attempt at least. It's small, but it's growing, and we've done some cool projects. You can see it on the website so far. You've been listening to Occasionally Interesting. Today we have Ruan. It's been a pleasure speaking with you. Yeah, always fun. Thanks for having me. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you.